you're new or visitor here, uh, we're in about the ninth session on a series that I just teach generally once a month on passing genuine faith to succeeding generations. And this will be a review for some of you, but uh, we talked early in this series about a tendency that we're not confined to that doesn't necessarily happen, but a tendency for one generation to be rock solid in their faith. But if it's not passed on, the next generation may be saved, but compromised. In other words, they're not as zealous as their parents. They do the churchy things, but they don't have that same fervor or the same commitment. And when they're those children of those second generation, when they see that compromise, what goes into their head is hypocrisy of which they want nothing to do. And so those third generation kids will often not be saved, but rather confused. And so that's generally what we've been doing. Uh, last month, we had the second of a, of, a, of a couple of messages on the vital importance of marriage in passing on that faith. And, and our, our foundation is God's Word, the, the, the apostles and prophets. The Christ is our cornerstone. But marriage kind of makes up the walls or the structure of the family. So that's where we started. And today, we hope to add to that structure... Uh, and address the role of the family in passing on what we call first chair faith. Uh, gonna get a little more practical today. Uh, gonna give you just a few of the things that we have experienced and done, uh, not necessarily what you need to do, but uh, uh, we hope that this will be helpful in putting, uh, uh, putting feet to this whole idea of passing on faith. So. Let's start in prayer. Lord God, we give you all the praise and the glory for the privilege we have to be here today, to assemble as saints, to worship you in spirit and in truth, and to hear your word. Lord, Father, help us to understand how important it is to get our own houses in order and worship and serve you diligently uh, in our hearts and in reality. Father, thank you for being with us today. Uh, may the, the words of my mouth and the understanding of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord God. Amen. Hey, uh, if you look on your, your handout there, you'll see that the first point we want to talk about is that if God gives you children... Give your children to God. Okay? The Old Testament starts out with the establishment of the family in Genesis. In chapter 2, it says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We've talked about that two becoming one several times now. So a, a husband and a wife make a family. But then we see this phrase, be fruitful and multiply, 
repeated several times throughout the Old Testament. So uh, it's true that not all, but most couples desire children. Then you go to the end of the Old Testament and you see a stark contrast where the prophet Malachi says, and this second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He, God, no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And listen to this. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the Spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Clearly something happened between the beginning and the end of the Old Testament. And we know, of course, that in the very next chapter in Genesis 3, man fell into sin. But the prophet here at the end says that God would not accept their worship and offerings due to their sin, especially how they treated their families. So when God said multiple times, be fruitful and multiply, he was not saying just go and make babies. Rather, the product of the marital union was to be images of God who are faithful to Him, godly offspring. In bringing children into the world, it's not who you produce, or rather, what you produce, it's who you produce. So this goes far beyond the birds and the bees, far beyond the biology of procreation. The labor continues beyond the birthing process. Parents are to make fertile the soul of each being made in God's image to similarly be God's followers and servants. Uh, we see this command most clearly in the Deuteronomy 6 passage that we've covered a number of times in summary. It says that parents are to pass on the fear, the respect, and love for the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind to succeeding generations, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. So the command to multiply comes with the responsibility to train and disciple your progeny to follow the Father. So to accomplish that, parents are commanded to keep His words on your own hearts and teach when they lie down, when they rise up, when they go in the way. And continuing, then take care lest you forget the Lord. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. I think God is pretty serious about this. He calls each of us to first chair faith, to walk worthy of our calling as Christ followers. Then 
we are to bring any children that he provides along that same path. But please note, we must be on that right path ourselves first before we can bring our young ones along that right path. Second chair parents raise children. First chair parents are equipped to rear godly offspring. And this happens not by chance, but by intentional and intense purposes, perseverance and prayer through trials, failures, setbacks, all of which teach us and make us and our children more humble, wise, and strong. In First Samuel, the character Hannah desperately petitioned the Lord for a child through prayer and fasting. She promised God that if he would give her a son, she would rear him to be righteous and then give him back to serve the father faithfully. And she did. Hannah took her young son to the priest Eli and then gave thanks for the privilege of bearing a child. And then she left him praying, my heart rejoices in the Lord. So from Hannah's story, we can draw at least, at least a couple of conclusions. First, children are a blessing. They're a gift that God gives, but not to all. And secondly, first chair parents show their thankfulness to God for that gift by rearing a child to be godly offspring, by giving that child back to God in a sense, meaning we prepare them for service to their heavenly father. Now, I want to ask how many of us could keep Hannah's vow, literally, hand your over, your very young, and your only child to a priest and a second chair priest at that. We all should remember that we really have no choice in this. We have no guarantee of our own lives, of any, any claim on tomorrow, nor of keeping our children. It was Job who lost all 10 of his children in one day who said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Even our children are in the palm of his hand. But Hannah, she made a sacrificial gift of her own volition. Samuel was definitely used by God. So should we not be just as intentional with ours? A um, little bit of an aside here. Uh, a few messages back, I mentioned some of the tumult of the, of the 70s. Okay, And one of those I mentioned that was a contributing factor was the feminist movement. And what I was talking about at that, at that time was the feminist movement that I went through, the one that got up in your face and said, don't snort when I abort. I mean, it was very confrontive. I was reminded after that that there were some things that could be part of the feminist movement that were really positive, like the right to vote. You know, women are equal with men. Or more recently, that men should not use their power and their influence to abuse women. Uh, and it, I thought about that, and then I also thought that another positive 
byproduct that may have come partly from the feminist movement is that is fathers taking more responsibility for child care and training. Because the concept that rearing children is women's work is simply not biblical. In fact, I think it's Satan's lie. I suggest that one of the biggest societal problems we face today is the astounding number of fathers who are MIA, missing in action, adding to the burden of mothers the things that were intended for the father to do. This is the fruit of the sexual revolution 50 years ago, evolving into, into the current attack on marriage and the vital role that two very different genders play together in a family and in the culture. Now, the importance of mothers has always been very clear, not just in birthing, but especially in the nurturing process. But the pathology of fatherlessness in its, all of its aspects makes clear that fathers are not useless appendages to the family, but vital to the emotional and spiritual development of children. In my opinion, nothing has harmed poor families more than the governmental policy to pay mothers to raise children without fathers. This came home to me a number of years ago when uh, one of our sons, who was probably 19 or 20 at the time, went off to a, a Christian youth camp, and he was a leader in a cabin of high school boys. And I got a call from him one day, and he, he just said, Dad, thank you for being my dad. But he was emotional. He was crying. I said, what's wrong, son? What, what happened? He goes, Dad. None of the boys in my cabin have a father in the home, and some of them don't even know who their father is. I mean, this is sin propagated by our culture and our government itself. To be truly effective, though, fathers must be more than present. That's just a start. They must be engaged in the life of their children. Again, the ideal is two working as one in parenting. Now, you see that for the qualifications of elders in, in uh, several passages, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3 here, we see the characteristics of first-chair fathers that all men should seek to emulate. He rules his household well. His children are submissive to him with all reverence, and he demonstrates his leadership by effectively leading his own household. And so from this, we can conclude that a first-chair father participates in the, the parenting process with care and unconditional love. He disciples his offspring he demonstrates submission to authority by his own example of submission. And he earns the respect of his children so that they desire to submit with a God-honoring attitude. So on your, your sheet there, I've got a question for you to think about and perhaps write something down there. What did you learn in your relationship with your mother or your father, positive or negative, that affects how you might pass on faith to your children or to others if you have no children? 
In other words, how can you give those children back to God in some way? I've got listed on the sheet there passing tips. And the first one is that if you have no children or if you're not married, think about how you can pass on your faith to young people around you by your example and your word. Reach out to them, engage with them, have a relationship with them, and they can benefit from your experience and your example. If you do have children, make sure that they have heard that you consider them gifts from God and that your greatest desire is for them to know and love Him as you demonstrate. And we can all pick out particular parents who may be having a struggle and pray for them in their efforts to rear godly offspring. Second point is that we are to teach our children the works of God. One of the things we discussed in the early messages in the series was about how many in the Bible, the first chair parents, actually saw the works of God. It was real to them, and it greatly affected their faith and their walk with God. Uh, and when the commitment of first-chair parents was not passed on, their children became second-chair believers, perhaps saved, but compromised. And those inconsistencies in their lives led their children to be confused, even seeing hypocrisy in their parents. Yeah, now what they saw oftentimes were miracles, uh, events that defy the laws of nature, yet God works in lesser ways that we may call providential or just blessings. Those also qualify as works of God. The question is, do we celebrate and show gratefulness for those works to the point that our, the younger generation sits up and pays attention? They happen to all of us, but do our kids hear about them? So we've had, we've had some in our family. We've had a couple of babies who were turned around the wrong way, and they got everything worked out okay. We had one with a core around its neck, which survived. Uh, we've had friends who saw that we had very little in money or food and provided for us, just prompted by the Holy Spirit. This church here, this body here, uh, Mike has told the story about how it was about to fold when they got together and they, they, they said, you know, there's some people who really need this body, so we're going to stick it out. And then, you know, uh, they had no place to meet. They're meeting in all kinds of crazy places, and finally they ended up at the theater at Care Paravel, and then eventually into the gym and with no way to buy or build a facility. But then God provided this building. And then we figured we need to expand because we were packed in tight. And so God again provided so that we got the addition just in time for COVID to hit. So that a couple months later when we got back together, we had room to space. And now we've got enough room to pack for a while anyway. So these things happen. We need to pay attention to them, and we need to celebrate them and help our children understand that these are the works of God. Psalm 78 admonishes fathers who were not teaching God's work 
And he says to stop hiding them from your children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Those fathers instead should testify of those wonders and teach them to their children. Quote, so that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. So this may be the reason the psalmist gives the reproof in the next verse, number eight, that says that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. God is serious about this. It's also possible that a parent could fail to tell those works because of a fear that their children just won't believe that they really are the works of God. Or maybe that's the job of the Sunday school teacher. The tendency to be reluctant or find excuses for not talking about God to kids is not just a shame. It deprives our children of the most important legacy that we can give. The passage in Deuteronomy 6 helps us understand that for our children to conclude that God is important to them they must first hear that message come out of our mouths and be convinced that it's important to us. It should be apparent to our children that we love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So we are to teach them all the time. And it goes on to say, you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And some Jews even today place masseuses or small parchments with Deuteronomy 6 attached to the side of their main door to remind them of this solemn responsibility every time they pass through the doorway. Christy and I grew up in a community with many Jewish classmates, and we attended several bar and bat mitzvahs, which was a coming-of-age ceremony at about 12 or 13. These Jewish kids were expected to know their heritage and why they were to serve God. Now, if Jewish parents were to post God's word on the doorposts of their house and gates, perhaps our faith should be apparent in our homes. Having a Christian plaque on the wall does not save you, clearly, but it is a visual sign of your faith. Same thing for a t-shirt. Now, warning, just remember that if you use visual signs of your faith, people will be looking for inconsistencies. We cannot expect the next generation to know the works of God and be godly if they do not see, hear, and believe that we know and are thankful for those works and that we love our Father deeply. Our love for Christ should be so much a part of our lives and our witness to Him, and it should be ongoing, constant, and consistent. We should be looking for teachable moments. We should verbally praise God when He works providentially. We should speak and act in ways that honor Him. So, Uh, A little passing tip here. Why don't you make a list of the works of God on paper 
answers to prayer, providential acts in your family or your extended family, and then add to the list over time and encourage your children to contribute to it. Talk about how God has worked in your life. Make praises of God and Jesus a part of your regular vocabulary so that it is clear that you are mindful of and you love him. Again, remember that your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Last point here we want to make is to teach children the Word of God. Now, now there's nothing new under the sun, but if you are much older than, say, 25, you probably notice that there's been some significant change in the, on the morality front since you were younger, okay? Uh, Bruce Wilkinson in the this series, The Three Chairs, recounts a conversation he had with a youth minister who told him about his presentation to the youth group of a program called True Love Waits. Some of you may remember that, which encouraged young people to preserve sexual purity until marriage. And he was talking about this, and afterwards a young girl approached him and said, you know, after seeing the way my parents have lived, I don't think I'll ever have sex before marriage. But you... You seem to be saying that there's a reason that we should not have sex before marriage. Is there some sort of prohibition against that? I thought everybody just did it. And the, the youth worker gently explained God's law that was given because of his love for us. And he heard that it was the first time that she'd ever even heard of the Ten Commandments. Now, Wilkinson's conclusion was that a godless generation is growing up in our world today. Today was 20 years ago. The generation, that generation like ours, which is likely much worse, are much like the one described in Judges 2, when a generation knows God, but the works and word of God are not passed on. And therefore, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served foreign gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were among them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Yeah, he's serious about this. Now, why should we be surprised at this? How can we expect young children and teens to follow God's law and his loving will when they do not know it? To paraphrase Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Or how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without their parents' teaching? You know, in the last couple of years, uh, our situation has changed dramatically, as you know, because of the pandemic. And we've always said, yeah, if you're sick, stay home. That's the best way we can protect one another. But I am convinced that Satan has used this fear of disease to keep Christians and their kids away from fellowship and to diminish their faith. But think about this. Even if that hadn't happened, a few hours a week, of church and Sunday school and maybe youth group 
cannot compete with the 24-7, 365 influence of the world. How much credibility will they give to church and youth group teachings if they don't hear it the rest of the week? God did not give your children to the world, to the school, to the fine arts teacher, or to the coach. He entrusted them to us as parents. Of course, we cannot pass on God's word if we don't know it ourselves. You cannot give what you do not have. Therefore, it requires that we spend time in the Word. You, you can feel it coming. Read your Bible. We can't teach them to love God with heart, soul, and might unless they see that example that we as parents and grandparents and older singles really love the Lord our God enough to read, learn, and apply it in our own lives. Now, we are facing many obstacles to biblical parenting and grandparenting today. As apologist Greg Kokel puts it, we are in a, an ideological trajectory of secular culture that is rapidly eroding America's fundamental freedoms in a way we have never encountered before. There are many other gods of the peoples who are around you, as we've been warned. Now, the gods of the people and other influences outside the family are too numerous to detail here. Instead, we should focus on the matters over which we have some direct influence and responsibility within the family. That doesn't ignore the culture, but it recognizes that we must always be more focused on the heart than the head. The more Christians get their own houses in order, the more effective they will be in influencing the culture. Uh, one example of, a, of some of the difficulties that we experience is we had kids on both sides of the technological revolution of the internet and smartphones. And we learned quickly that they were way ahead of us in understanding how this stuff works. So I did not sense that we could win a technological tug-of-war or that trying to catch them in the act would really work. Now, there's nothing wrong with parental controls on the Internet and phone, but I had a strong sense that they could always find a way around and such you know, those protective measures. Therefore, we focused more on training in God's purity and following His best in their lives. Now, there's some risks to our approach. Uh, and there was some stumbling and harm to some of our kids who did not always exercise self-control. But when these worldly temptations and traps arose, we had to deal with it as best we could from a scriptural standpoint, and I think they learned from the consequences of their mistakes. Christy and I grew up in a nominally Christian culture in which uh, the lines of right and wrong were much more recognizable than they are today. Then in, the, in the, the 70s, we've talked before, there was a huge cultural shift uh, or a paradigm shift, much like we're seeing today. Our oldest was born in 1976. And early on, whether it was through our involvement with starting a Christian school or through the influence of the homeschooling culture, we decided that we would do our best to spend time with our kids at night and then eventually in the mornings. 
When our oldest were very young, uh, we read to them at night books like the Chronicles of Narnia and the, the Little House on the Prairie books and things like that. Now, of course, parents of small children know well the difficulty of keeping attention. However, by reading to kids, you can create the capacity for attention. You'll likely find that they can't be engaged for very long at all, but you can start with five minutes or maybe even just one minute and then gradually increase the time you spend reading to them as their attention span grows. Now, we and Chrissy was very good at this started with simple scripture memorization, sometimes with songs. Later, uh, they developed, as they developed greater understanding, we started meeting as a family in the mornings for devotions to search the wisdom of God's Word. Yep, you, as you can imagine, we had some droopy eyes, some falling asleep, sometimes rolling of the eyes, and much weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth when we turned the lights on to get them up. And, you know, I've got to admit that I don't think I did a very good job in keeping their attention. I lack creativity. The main thing I want to get across today is to be persistent and consistent. Despite their protestations of time, I think that discipline had some effect. Before our last graduation just a couple of years ago, I got surprised. Uh, all 11 of our kids showed up and sat at the table. And we had one last wisdom search together. It was one of the most special moments of my life. A few of the other things that we've tried to do, okay? We tried. This is astounding, this first one. We tried to eat meals together. Yeah. Now, I think, even though that sounds simple, I think it's probably hard for some families to do. Maybe we need to take a look at our priorities. We tried to praise any interest we saw in God or any positive response and certainly any recognition of wrongdoing. We tried to pray with them regularly. We, we allowed them to see Christy and me talking and praying together at a special time when they were not allowed to interrupt. This was our time to show how significant our relationship was to give them that security, of course, unless somebody was bleeding. We tried to give them the biblical reason why for our commands or our discipline whenever we could. We try to teach them character qualities and give examples from history to work on. We try to avoid the temptation to belittle or make fun of their questions. And maybe most importantly, we tried to ask forgiveness when we were wrong. Now, I said none of these we did perfectly, but we tried. It was on our hearts. Passing on faith can be tricky. And some people conclude that their own teenage rebellion was a result of their parents making them go to church. 
Therefore, they swing to the other side, the other extreme, and they leave the decision of going to church and all the issues of faith to the discretion of their wise children. And usually what they will find is that sports and video games and other temporal activities will quickly fill the void. Christians figured out that kids learn in many different ways, whether by seeing, hearing, doing, and handling. So please think about that. Each child may be different. Find ways to keep your kids interested. The key that I cannot overstate is the importance of the young learning God's Word from their parents. This illustrates to them not only the truths themselves, but that we believe those truths are important enough to learn ourselves and to take the time and effort to pass them on. Let me give you a few other practical steps that we tried. With very young children, you can read simple Bible stories. As their comprehension develops, a family can read, let's say, the Proverbs uh, to glean wisdom. There are 31 chapters, and you can read one chapter for each day of the month and then repeat, knowing that you're always going to get more insights. And if the kids can read, take turns reading and stop to discuss when you can make an application. Later, you can read passages or books, perhaps starting with the Sermon on the Mount, which is rich in wisdom, uh, Matthew 5 through 7, the Gospel of John, or Romans 6 through 8. Uh, There is no one way to do this. Memorizing as the family goes along in these studies is one of the best ways to get the Word into their hearts. And young kids can memorize whole chapters if you stick with it. Now, some may feel that they're just, they just don't know enough about the Bible to lead a devotion. Uh, One of the best ways to connect with kids is to admit that. Teens especially hate hypocrisy, but appreciate genuine humility. Don't let that be a reason to put it off. And there are many helps and resources out there for you. Uh, A compendium of resources is called Right Now Media, available to all who are on Lion Lamb Breeze, uh, where you can find something profitable for all ages. Now, let me say a few things about the use of outside resources. You know, if you do that, that's great. It's, as time goes on and you grow in your faith and your confidence yourself, you will become more comfortable in searching and learning directly from the Bible with them. Of course, any kind of outside resource should be carefully previewed and make sure that they're biblically sound. Third, do not park your kids in front of a video and walk off. It's vital that they see this is important to you. This is a family activity, not like babysitting with a VeggieTales video while the adults do their thing. You can do that when you've got to have babysitting, but for your family time, you want to do it with them. And after using an outside resource, spend time talking about it, what you learned and what they may have learned from it. And even if you are confident in leading, outside resources can provide variety, something I lacked. Try to avoid doing the same thing all the time. Keep it fun and interesting. Don't just preach, ask questions. 
This will develop their speaking and reasoning skills, their confidence, their faith. Uh, thinking long-range here in terms of educational philosophy, learning is sometimes described as a three-phase process called the trivium. It starts with what is labeled as the grammar stage, which is learning facts. God is good, righteous, and just. I'm a sinner and worthy of eternal death. Christ died to pay for those sins so that I can go to heaven. Now, unfortunately, if Christian kids get anything from their parents, that's about where it starts in the head. Parents really want this to be implanted in their heart if they know what is good and what will last. If we expect that knowledge to stick when they're challenged, as they mature, children need to move on to the logic stage, the second one that is understanding why they believe what they've been taught. Christy and I uh, facilitate a class for uh, homeschool high schoolers called Getting to the Gospel for this very reason. We warn the students, it's not if, but when your faith is challenged in the future, when somebody asks you, why do you believe in God? If your response is, well, because my parents or my Sunday school teacher told me that there's a God, you will be laughed out of the room. Kids who take our class come from many different churches, and most of them have an idea of what they believe, particularly the kids from Lion and Lamb. However, i got to be honest, few can explain why they believe God exists. Young, well, and old people need to understand that science is the friend of Christianity and that Christianity as a worldview matches reality better than any other. They need to understand that the archaeological and documentary evidence, as well as logic, completely supports the reliability of the Bible, that the evidence of the resurrection is powerful. By the way, go with your kids or send them to the debate at Washburn University tomorrow night. You'll, you'll, you'll get a lot of good information, a lot of good arguments. They should not be intimidated by college professors, skeptics, or even the cancel culture. They have evidence, science, reason, and logic on their side, even though the world is telling them they're kooks. Understanding the what and the why pre prepares them for the rhetoric stage of the trivium. Rhetoric is the art of persuasion, the ability to communicate, effect, communicate effectively through action and word. And for Christians, this is the gospel. This is why we teach our kids to converse and persuade by speaking the truth in love, starting with conversations in the home. Okay. Like any fad diet, the best of intentions will disintegrate into apathy if not a priority. One thing that we found to be helpful was to have a specific time to get together. Even more important is the commitment and the discipline to keep it up. Okay, starting young helps develop the importance of this thing in their hearts and you can keep this up even into the teen years. Now, if you haven't done this, a late start with an admission that you should have been doing it for a while 
will go a long ways towards your kids seeing your humility, your love for them, and your desire to please the Lord now. Yep, you should find ways that reach the hearts of your children. And I've just given you a few ideas to pass on. You can talk to other parents for what works for them. But the important thing is that you do something, that you take action. Of course, the goal is that our kids get into the Word themselves on their own initiative, that they own their own convictions, that they become first chair followers of Christ. But it starts with the investment by and the example in life of their parents. So the last passing tip on your handout is to read your Bible for yourself, but also read your Bible with your kids. Final question. And be honest with yourself. Are God's Word and my kids important enough to me to put in the time and the investment to put them together? Pray for wisdom in how to train and disciple so that your kids and grandkids and any other youth around you that over whom you may have influence will be able to develop that rock-solid, genuine faith. Okay. If you would stand, uh, and if you've got that thing there, this is a passage out of Isaiah 38 as the worship team comes up. Uh, and let's recite this together. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you, you, the, the pit, do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you, as do you stay. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness.